Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us in the crew this week, where Essence and I are going to discuss both a political and pop culture topic and engage in some healthy debate and discussion. As always, we want to encourage you guys to join in, so please reach out to us on social media or email if you have anything you'd like to add to the conversation. Cue music. All right, so weekly wrap. I have a story. Do you have one? I, I just happened like an hour or two ago. Yeah, you should you should go first. Okay. <laughs> um. So I've been working out with a trainer, uh, like two or three times a week. And today wow. I'm on the leg press machine, and he's like, "Do you have an Instagram?" I was like, "I do." He goes, "Oh, what is it?" And I figured he probably just wanted to like you know take some video for his business page or whatever, and like tag me in it, mm-hmm. and. While I'm doing these uh, like calf raises, after I get off the machine, he's like, oh, this is interesting. What's this? And turns his phone around. And it's um, our podcast website. <laughs> he like clicked on the <laughs> link. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> please don't listen to that. And he's like, no, this is so cool. Like, I'm going to listen. And I was like, please don't. <laughs> so shout out to Did David. Did he start playing it while you were there? No, he was just on the website. And he was like, oh, what is this? And I was like, oh, that's my podcast. My friend, I just started it. There's only like nine episodes. So, hey, David, <laughs> you decided to listen. <laughs> Welcome to the groom. But yeah, David's great. We love him. So I just, I was so flustered when he was like, ooh, what's this? And it was the cartoon of you and me on the couch. Love that. I was like, those are my dogs. I paid someone to make them. <laughs> okay, what's yours? Um, so mine is like a, a kind of a future one. But tomorrow, uh, my old nonprofit is like giving me this youth action award. But this entire week, I've been dreading the part that comes after the award, which I have to say, like, an acceptance speech. And it's only, like, two minutes long, but I have no idea what I'm going to say for it. So I've just been, like, writing, like, templates out and then saying it out loud. And I'm asking for feedback, and I'm like, no, this is boring. So Did I have no idea the joke? You're always supposed to start with the yes, joke. Yes, because I am clearly a hilarious person. <laughs> You're just an absolute jokester. <laughs> You just can't, can't stop the jokes. Always. Always, always being so silly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll let you know how that goes. If I yeah. Don't, like fumble. Congrats on your award. I remember because <laughs> when we released a podcast, you got an email and it was like, congrats on the podcast. We want to give you an award. And I was like, what is this for? <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I was like, what did you do? <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. Just the nonprofit I worked for. It's like, oh. Congrats, girl. <laughs> what a nice way of letting me know, <laughs> including me in the email. <laughs> Got you. How exciting. I'm proud of you. Great work here. Great work all around. I just hate compliments. Yeah, they're like, you do a lot for your community, and you're like, please don't tell me that. <laughs> do not show me graciousness. Actual it makes evidence. me so uncomfortable. <laughs> Actually, can you just, this email is enough. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have any more projects? <laughs> uh, for clean water? No, I was making a joke that you're. They're like, oh, do you have any more work? <laughs> like, like so actually, rude. please don't thank me. But do you have any more work that's actually much nicer than an award? <laughs> 
Well, ironically, I asked to work for them for winter study, and I'm hoping that it gets approved. Yay! That'd be fun. Oh, excited. Okay. This week's episode. Title, Essence and I talked a little bit before. Maybe a little confusing, but we wanted, I wanted something catchy. You know, I like (laughs) alliteration and stuff. So, we're going to talk about one of my favorite movies, and then... Because there's definitely a lot of complex terminology and ideas and systems that go into that movie, we thought it would be interesting to kind of have a discussion beforehand. And so we said big banks, but we're really kind of talking about the institutions and organizations that created the situation that then resulted in the 2008 recession. And then we'll kind of talk about a pop culture telling of that story which is the big short the um movie based on the 2010 book of the same name by michael lewis and he also did like moneyball i think the director of the movie also did the the blind side i want to say adam mckay but anyway so just so we're kind of clear on what we meant by big banks and then if you didn't know what the big short was it's a movie (laughs) based on a book but I'm talking about the movie. So you're up first. So, I mean, the question I wrote ahead of time was, how did big banks come to exist in the U.S.? What's their role? What other financial institutions are affiliated with the banks in the stock market? But I think you can kind of take this in whatever direction you want to, knowing that the real question is kind of just like 2008 recession. How did we get there? Yeah. Um, I feel like I'll start with the recession because I think that will put like all of these weird institutions into perspective. Um, and then I'll make sure that I, I definitely touch on like what, what the heck is a big bank? What are they doing? How do they make money? Why do we all want to be investment bankers, et cetera? Um, so to start, uh, said th- the consultant <laughs> fighting words that is not an investment <laughs> banker. <laughs> Just when you said that, when we all want to be big bankers, and I was like, do we? <laughs> no, the we art lawyer and the consultant. <laughs> oh, okay, I thought for a second you were saying we were the same, and my heart my heart sunk a bit. Um. Oh, no, I was like, you're a consultant, <laughs> and I'm going to law school for art. <laughs> what do you mean? Asterix, the we does not include a... Okay, so some, like, quick facts about the recession. So um, the dates are kind of... Obviously, people have differing opinions on this a little bit, but generally, it's it lasted about 18 months from late 2007 until almost the end of 2009. But in fact, like we're still reeling from the effects of the recession. Um, and some major things that kind of hallmark recessions, and specifically this recession, um, were figures that you've all probably heard before. So that unemployment rates are increasing. That's one of the signs of a recession. Um, and in 2009, Unemployment reached about 10%, and this was even higher among black households, with about 15% unemployment in Hispanic households, with around 12% unemployment. And the U.S. did not return to the level of output or um, GDP or whatever figure you want to put on that till almost five years later, um, and that would be 2013 at that point. And that's why it's considered great, not because it's the worst recession that we've ever had, but because it was one of the most long-lasting recessions that was very hard to kind of restart the economy from. And so there's also like lots of narratives that kind of people attribute to why did this recession happen? Um, why 
why didn't we see it coming? And I think the story varies a lot of did we see it coming and who's responsible for the recession? And I'll kind of try to find a middle ground between all of those stories and what we talk about today. And um, the movie has a very particular take on it as well. So I'll be interested to hear kind of what you think about this as well. So before we get into the recession, it's really important to talk about the periods leading up to the recession. And so this period is called like the Great Moderation. And this is the period basically in like the 70s and 80s uh, where there's rising GDP, there's low inflation, um, there's small recessions, but not more like they're cyclical. And because of this, people attributed this to the fact that there is deregulation, which basically means taking away the restrictions on the economy. Um, and so we roll back this act called the Glass-Steagall Act, which basically allows investment banks to and commercial banks to operate together. And this kind of merge is what allows these ginormous banks, big banks, this episode's named after, to kind of fail and this myth that you're too big to fail. And so that's like an important kind of historical moment there. So yeah, so another, so the first part of this piece is that big banks form um, by rolling back this Glass-Steagall Act. So that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story is like the housing part, which is, I think, the more common part of the story. And leading up to 2007, uh, property values have been rising, and this is leading to people wanting to buy homes at record rates. And so by the 2000s, um, the market was, the housing market was booming, uh, and mortgage uh, leaders or small ba- or commercial banks were rushing to kind of approve as many of these loans as possible. Perhaps for the first time ever, um, low-income people or people with low credit scores were able to buy houses with these mortgages that we're calling subprime. And so this basically are extremely risky mortgages, which are really easy to obtain, and they're really cheap at first. But then they become very expensive in the long term, and they're really hard to pay back. Uh, and something that people joked about that were giving these loans, they used to call them ninja loans. So basically, uh, no income, no job, no assets as a good joke, like, ha ha ha, let's just give poor people these debts that they can't pay. And so, um, so this is where investment banks come in. So along with issuing mortgages, lenders also kind of packed these subprime mortgage loans and then resold them. And that's what we call this process securitization or securities. That's what you might have heard that word. Um, and this basically bundles loans together. You sell it to the investment bank. And then the investment bank in turn sells them to investors around the world in these mortgage-backed securities or MBOs or MBS. Sorry when you can't spell. Um, and so banks wanted to keep giving out these loans. Um, so they, they kept selling these to investment banks um, because they wanted just to kind of keep getting out subprime loans to people because more and more people were buying houses and this had never been a phenomenon. Um, and so investment banks then begin selling those mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, um, on the secondary market as this new thing called a CDO, or a collateralized debt obligation. And so this basically allows them to like do this a similar process. They take it, they pack it all up again, um, or they divide it into different sections, and they basically resell it again to different types of investors. And so... Wall Street, like, said that they had all these mathematical models that this, like, made sense and that it reduced the risk because you were, like, combining a bunch of different types of assets together. In reality, 
these mathematical models like didn't show that and these are extremely risky because remember these are literally like built on these subprime loans for people who potentially can't pay back this loan and so now we have like these these two kind of things happening here so um, i think i was just gonna say to clarify because i think the cdo is a, a huge thing it's like basically what ends up catalyzing the recession is in case you're confused as to like why a subprime like bundled together is less is supposedly less risky than just like one subprime loan is the idea is like everyone's going to pay their mortgage right like that's the last thing you don't pay like you're you're not going to pay your electric bill before you don't pay your mortgage. And so if you have like 10 houses and one is a riskier loan, it's okay to make like that riskier loan because you have like the nine other safer bets being made on the other nine houses. The issue was, is in the CDOs, all 10 houses were subprime. So you're no longer balancing the risk like the idea is supposed to say. I mean, technically they're saying that it is balancing because the likelihood that everyone fails isn't supposed to be as high as like one person failing in a subprime loan, but then it did. Sorry. I just, I knew what you were saying, but I just wanted to clarify in case like what that underlying principle was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so now they're selling these CDOs to different types of finance, financial institutions. And so they also start adding on these other different types of, they repackage it in many different types of ways. And one is like these, like CDS, whatever. It's this other type of derivative. It doesn't really matter. But the thing is, what's important about that part is that now there's multiple different types of financial institutions involved in this. It's no longer just people who can't afford to pay back their loan. It's people, now it's investment banks that have sold this to hedge funds, to other banks. And so now everyone is kind of put into this ginormous like storm of, problems with these loans and so one because the investment banks helped kind of spread this among many different types of financial institutions no one kind of knows like what's going on right like when this all starts to fail they all are complicit in it because they've all been selling it in a different type of way and so banks also at the time because um, it was really cheap they took on more debt to keep buying these cdos and cds or sorry cds um, and so that's why you see giant banks like the Lehman Brothers go down because they had like put themselves into debt to continue, continue buying these. Um, and so like at, at the end of their time, they owed $600 billion in debt um, and they sold themselves for like $10 a share. Um, and so like what actually leads to this crisis is um, interest rates continue rising in 2004 because people were in, were scared of inflation. Um, and so this means that home prices start to rise and they peak in 2006. People can't pay back their loans because the interest rate's high. Because remember, we said they start low, the interest rate, but it keeps increasing. So people can't pay it because they couldn't afford to have the loan in the first place. Um, and so supply outplaces demand for housing, which then causes, causes a sharp decline in the value of a home. And so this makes it super difficult, again, for people to keep buying our complete payments on their houses. And so as a result, people kept trying to buy these mortgages because 
the only solution to not being able to pay your mortgage is to kind of refinance like you were talking about. Um, and so kind of the, the whole point of this is now that we're, we're seeing the crash. People aren't able to pay. And now everyone is implicated in this because they all, all of these packages that they've repackaged things into all include these subprime loans. And so I just want to clarify because I know from the movie, and maybe this is just you're using a slightly different term than the movie did, but synthetic CDOs, which are CDOs made up of other CDOs. And essentially the idea is that people are making bets on the outcome of CDOs, which is kind of what allowed the like U.S. housing market crisis to become a global one because I know in the movie, I think the guy who Michael Scott, I said Michael Scott, that's his office name, LOL. Um, <laughs> but he's talking to this guy and he asks him, you know, for every $50 million in credit default swaps that are out there, how much is betting on those swaps? And the guy said every day, like probably a billion dollars, which is kind of what allowed all these other countries to be affected by it because they're, you know, able to take part in this betting. And so kind of wanted to clarify, you know, is that the same thing you're talking about? And then also, you know, just how it goes from being a U.S. issue to a global issue. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, what you're saying makes sense. Also, the part that makes it a global issue automatically is because investment banks are involved and their investors are not only U.S. based. Exactly. Um, yeah. Of who they're selling it to. Mm -hmm. Also, like as these loans become more and more worthless, like the like the response is either to like hold on to them and wait or to sell them. They couldn't get rid of them because everyone was like facing the same problem of different types of financial institutions. Um and so people just, like, held on to them. And so this caused, like, large institutions and investment banks and pension funds to just nosedive because they couldn't get rid of these horrible securities. Um, and so that's also why you see this, again, restructuring during the recession of big banks because they were collapsing. And, like, there's just weird response in which, like, a lot of them don't go away after 2008. Which is very surprising. Or they the banks, you mean? Yeah. I actually, I think it would be really interesting to talk about at the end. But I wrote a paper in my financial development and regulation class. Uh, we had to do something on another country, or I believe, and I ended up talking to the professor. And I basically told him, I was like, I love this movie. I love The Big Short. I kind of want to do something around that and like the recession. And he was like, you should look at the Icelandic recession, and the way that Iceland dealt with the big banks is so drastically different than how the U.S. did. And so I think that would be kind of fun to compare at the very end. So just a reminder to kind of come back to that. But exactly. Ooh. It is really weird that none of them really went away, except for I think Lehman Brothers, right? Is that the only one that really? Yeah. Lehman Brothers is like the most, I'm sure most people have heard about this. Like that's, yeah. the, that's the one that like. That really went down. That yeah. really went under. Yeah. They really messed up. Yeah. Did Bear Stearns, is that still a bank? Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow. Also also gone. Oh, also gone. Okay. I was like, wow, I haven't heard about them in forever. <laughs> that makes more sense. <laughs> I feel better. Wolves. Um, yeah, literally. <laughs> also not Wolves. That's also... Never mind. <laughs> As it says Lulz for the first time, tomorrow's headline. 
Uh, okay, so something I think is also interesting is that there were a couple of, like, checks in place. If you're wondering, like, well, this makes logical sense why this would seem kind of risky when it's all betting on people, like, paying back housing loans, which generally are very, like, there. there's different fluctuations in people being able to pay for their mortgage. And so to put things into perspective, there were different ways that people either maybe didn't necessarily like, see all of this coming, but saw that there were some really risky things that Wall Street was doing, that investment banks were doing, that everyone that was like betting on these securities were doing that should have been checked and were checked by some people or were told to be checked. And so there's kind of these big three credit rating agencies. So it's like Moody's, S&P, Fitch Group, and they all placed a triple A rating which is reserved for the most safest investments, like something like a bond, on all of these securities, even though they contained really risky mortgages. Um, and so I think like that fact points to the fact that like there's so much, and even in the regulatory agencies, there's so much collusion. Not I don't want to say collusion because that's a very specific legal term, but there's tons of relationships between all of these institutions, and each of them their success is very heavily based on the other. Well, and I think to your point, there's a scene in the movie I know where they go and they talk to one of the ratings agencies and they're kind of trying to get it out of her. Like, is there any, is there a bond you haven't rated AAA? Mm -hmm. And after being kind of like pressed for a while, she finally says like, if we don't give them the rating, they're just going to go down the like street to Moody's. So like, there are only so many people who could, give the ratings and basically it was like well if we don't give them the rating they're just going to go to our competitors so we basically have to well obviously they didn't have to but that was like the way that they were um justifying what they were doing mm -hmm. and i think that's a huge aspect as well where it's like mm, we don't give it to them someone else is gonna so we might as well like yeah and i also think that's because there's not as much independence between these organizations as they're supposed to be mm -hmm. like yeah well isn't and i mean i know this is another thing they bring up in the movie but like there is a girl who was working for the sec and is like floating her resume to big banks and someone's like isn't there shouldn't there be a rule against that that you can't go from working in a financial institution to like a private bank and she was like no and i think you know if you're working at um a rating agencies and then you're going to a bank like you hit mm -hmm. the ends i mean there's just a lot of it, yeah so there's exactly the word that i want to say and, and it's also like that's not even just a thing exclusive to the banking industry people leave government agencies to go into private sector things like lobbying investment banking whatever mm -hmm. all the time with all this knowledge of how they're regulated exactly um, and so yeah this is like a problem people have been talking about forever also like the people who are running these organizations are like have relationships with one another or they worked at these places before. Um, mm -hmm. The last, what, Jarrett Diamond, what is his name? Whatever. The guy that was like, what, the, the banking person in the cabinet. Diamond. Oh my God. I thought you were talking about the movie because in the movie there's a guy named Jarrett Vanette. And I was oh, like, no. wow, impressive that you remembered his name. <laughs> Uh, but the basically the banking cabinet member who's supposed to be regulating these banks like has worked for like Morgan Stanley for like the last 20 years of his life like it's just like a big meme at that point of 
<laughs> like the people who were getting to regulate these people like worked in this industry for yeah. x amount of years and they're not like mm-hmm. leaving the industry to be like these are the horrors of investment banking they're leaving like still talking to their friends and yeah. not being critical of banking um mm-hmm. i think something that's maybe really simple like we hear the term all the time and maybe it would be good to get some clarification on is what exactly an investment bank is and what it does and so how come they are not only providing the mortgages a lot of times that are related to these not providing mortgages but you know what i'm saying like loans and stuff and then they're also providing the shorts that people are going to end up using like how are they doing both you know what i mean they're like essentially betting against themselves in both ways Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one thing before I jump right into that is the kind of the fact that they're making money at all steps of this process is something very unique to an investment bank and what makes it very different than the other type of bank. There's been arguments that like no one saw it coming as like maybe some like caveats to that statement is that investment banks did know it was coming, but they profit off of each part of this this process, right? Because they're the they're the intermediaries that are always mm-hmm. selling this new type of security, whatever gets transformed into, and then selling it again. And so mm-hmm. they need to be a part of each one of those processes. And if someone can't get rid of it and need to transform it, like they also have to be the person to do that. Yeah. And so that's what characterizes an investment bank versus a commercial bank. Um, so just what like, would what would be an example of a commercial bank? Yeah, so a commercial bank is exactly what you're thinking, like what people think banking is, like a a, a clerk, a teller, and so. Um, storefront community banks are traditionally like what we view as that. And they're the people. Can you give a name that of give one you, that I would recognize? Um, like TD Bank. Like they give you a loan. Like they are the mm-hmm. person that work with individuals. Investment banks don't work with individuals. They work with either startups or really large companies. Okay. Banks or commercial banks only work with people like individuals or very small companies. Like they give you like a business loan, for example, if you're like a mom mm-hmm. and pop shop. Okay. Um, and the big four investment banks, right? Like JP Morgan, um, Chase, um, JP Morgan Chase, that was one word. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citibank, but they also own commercial banks. And that's because of They're the involved in glass. every step of the process. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, but the part, that's makes all this kind of no one saw it coming like that fallacy wrong is that the deregulation of the seventies to nineties era made it possible for investment banks to both be involved in investment banking type things and also regular type banking things Mm -hmm. before that time period, after the great depression, there was a very hard line that investment banks are not commercial banks. And when deregulation happened in the 70s, it allowed these ginormous banks to form. Bank of America gives you a loan. They also do investment banking. Mm. So that's where we see these major large banks. Yeah. Um, And so the first investment bank, weirdly, though, and this is where you see the arguments of, well, do we need investment banking or not? And I will give the only maybe perhaps sympathetic view towards investment banking ever just to give all the facts here. <laughs> so the first investment bank um, – They've existed for a long time throughout history, different forms of investment banking. But kind of the canonical example in the United States was Jay, Jay Cook, um, after the, during and after the Civil War, um, we need to finance the war. And so primarily bonds were used to finance the war. Uh, bonds are basically like people buy them and it's like a temporary loan that you give to the government so they can finance a project. 
But as you expect, like it's not necessarily extremely high amounts. So the first investment bank forms to help finance infrastructure of post-war, post-Civil War era. So like railroads, et cetera. And so they issued kind of these types of bonds and sold them to investors to pay for these infra- infrastructure projects. Well, first investment bank, yay. So then in 1933, the Glass-Steagall Act, like after the Depression, separates these banks from normal banks. Um, and as we see with the deregulation, then the internet age comes, which is perfect for investment banks because we talked about their two functions are ginormous companies and venture capital or like a startup. And so we see with the 90s with the tech boom that they finance all of these projects and really change kind of the goal of what the internet age will be. And so investment banks, their biggest argument is that they provide the capital when other entities aren't able to. So they're able to provide railroads in the 1800s. They're able to provide the tech companies money to form their new companies. And then with the big boom in M&A or mergers and acquisitions that come afterwards in the 2000s, like they finance all of these. They're involved in all of these rooms. And so they finance all these projects. And that that's the major argument for investment bank that they kind of helped start all these things. Yeah, I think it's helpful to see like, okay, well, what's the What's the good part? Like, why do we have them in the first place? And obviously we see a lot of the critical aspects, but was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Just super basic. Like, this is how they make money. So they, you purchase an asset like someone does, right? Or some type of thing that has a monetary value. And we call that a security. This uh, investment bank sells that security to some third party for a fee. That's how they make their money. Um, And you might wonder, like, why can I just sell my own security to whoever I want? The investment bank takes on risk when they're selling that for you. So, like, maybe, like, someone doesn't want to buy your security. When the investment bank takes it from you and you pay them to take it from you, they take that risk that either they find someone or they don't, but that's not your problem anymore. It's already off your hands. Um, And so, basically, they assume all the risk. They're risk-holding institutions um which is why you might hear like the wall street like they play fast and loose and that that's the whole point of them they're supposed to be risky endeavors in some way um and commercial banks do not do this they only deal with people and small companies just to like make this very clear and they make profit through interest a small bank right like the interest off the loan that they gave you investment banks make profit off of the selling that they're doing to a third party i'm sure when we talk later no exactly that's why i didn't know if if there was anything like kind of fundamental that we wanted to establish before we talk a little bit more about the movie. Yeah. So let's transition. So I know Big Short is one of your favorite movies <laughs> that you've watched like a thousand times. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of want to get into what do you think this movie in particular has to offer people? Um, and additionally, there's there's tons of movies out there about Wall Street, about being bankers, about being in this lifestyle, about re- the recession generally. Is there value in the genre movies? Do you think that The Big Short is different than these movies? Um, and yeah, generally, like, why, why do you love it? Yeah. Okay. So first, I have a fun story, which is definitely going to be embarrassing for me, but I feel like everyone can appreciate. So I was 10, I believe, maybe even nine when the banks start to collapse, and then 10 through most of 2008. And like many 
you know, fourth graders, I was very literal. So when everyone was talking about like the banks collapsing, my mind pictured like a big stone bank and Corinthian columns that had like collapsed. Like it was a big pile of rubble (laughs) and everyone was talking about it. And I genuinely remember thinking, like, I don't understand what the issue is. Like, why can't they just go in the rubble and get the money? Like, I was so in the rubble. Yeah, just like, let's just like pick up some of the rubble and like get the money back out. Like, why is this such an issue? And so obviously, like, as I got older, I understood that one single bank had not collapsed. And like now everyone was upset and like there was no more money. But I, I didn't fully understand like what had happened. Because when you're 10, you know, you're just going to soccer practice or whatever in school. You're not... No one's talking to you about securities mm-hmm. and mortgages. So this movie came out, I think, in December of my senior year of high school. And I went and I saw it with my dad, my aunt, and maybe my brother. And so this was the first time that I was really interacting with material that was talking about like what happened and why it happened. And so I think that's part of my like fascination with the movie is that I finally was kind of like really understanding something that was obviously super pivotal to like everything we're doing today. Mm-hmm. But um, I think what I really like about the movie is the way that they have presented the information. They very much understand that what they are talking about is really confusing to most people and that's because they use these terms like cdo cso i don't know you said some other ones that like i didn't even know Mm -hmm. and they even say in kind of the beginning of the movie that they're the purpose of using all these terms and things is basically so that you think like oh i don't know what any of this means i'll just leave it to the bankers and because that you're not going to investigate you think that they know what they're doing they have the freedom to do whatever they want And so I think part of the value in this movie – so one thing, if you haven't seen the movie that I really love that the movie does, is, for example, when they first introduced the term subprime, it, like, cuts from the narrative structure of the movie to Margot Robbie in a bathtub drinking champagne. And she's like, when you hear subprime, subprime means, like, really bad – she says a curse word. I'm not going to – I'm trying to keep it PG. But um, (laughs) she's like – that means like really bad, really risky loans. So for the rest of the movie, like when you're hearing that, that's what this is referring to, which is, I feel like so key when you're watching a movie that in, you know, the first 10 minutes of it, they're talking about a term that most people don't understand to be like, okay, let's take kind of a comedic break to Margot Robbie in a bathtub explaining this term so that you can follow. And they do it again with like CDO. I think it was Anthony Bourdain. He has, um, He's talking about, like, if you bought a bunch of fresh fish on Friday, and now it's Sunday, and he can't serve that fish anymore, but he doesn't want to take the losses. So what does he do? He, like, cuts up the fish and puts it in a stew. Now it's no longer, like, three-day-old halibut. It's a whole new thing. It's, like, a fish stew. And so he can sell it for, like, a same price, but people are eating three-day-old fish. That's, like, kind of what he says. And then again, like, when they're talking about synthetic CDOs later, I think it's um richard thaler who is the father of behavioral economics and selena gomez playing poker and like selena gomez makes a bet and then everybody starts betting on her bet which is how they describe like that ten thousand dollar bet selena gomez makes turns into a billion dollar 
amount of, you know, a billion dollar bet between everyone's um, bets combined. And I think at least in this movie, I, that's where I find a lot of value coming from in the sense that maybe after the first time I watched that movie, I mean, I had so many questions. I remember I just sat with my dad and my aunt. It was like, well, who's doing this? Like, who's getting, who are the people betting against it? Like, I had more questions than I did answers, but I wouldn't have known to ask that question before the movie. And so I do think I like that there is this really accessible, I mean, you can rent it for two ninety nine on Amazon. Wow, and- promo. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I, well, I had to rent it. <laughs> Actually, I just bought it for seven ninety nine because I was like, I've watched this movie enough. I feel like $8 is a good price. Like, I'll have it forever. But um, yeah, I feel like it's a super accessible way for people to have a better understanding. And I think because the movie ends with like, they are now, big banks are basically have just renamed it into another acronym, like a CDO. They're just doing it again. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, hey, watch out because... Yep. Which I do have stuff on that. Yeah. So I feel like that's kind of like the first place where I wanted to start. But is there anything else you want to say a little bit before I... I think your point about like this purposely like confusing language is super important. Because I think this is just not just like... Wow. This does not just apply to banking. Like I think we're told all the time like this is super complicated. So, like, here is this specialized knowledge person that, like, does mm-hmm. this and understands this. So, like, it'll be okay. And that's just not the case. Like, if there's anything where you can't explain it, then maybe, like, that that should be the red flag that this isn't mm-hmm. something we should be doing. I mean, it's a way that they – I think what's – I can't remember what the line is, but it's something like they have all these terms and stuff, so you'll feel confused and leave it to them. But mostly, so you'll just leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Like, you won't even bother them. They'll just be like, here, take my money. You know better than I do. I don't know what these terms mean. And one thing I also think is important is the difference, and I don't think we talked about this, but between a fiduciary and, like, an unregular banker or, like, person who's going to manage your retirement, a fiduciary is someone who is legally obligated to act in your best interest But that's not what you would think, like, oh, I'm giving my money to this bank. They probably should have to work in my best interest, but they don't. Mm -hmm. You have to make sure they are, like, credited as a fiduciary. So I think Mark Baum in the movie, which I think they've changed the names. So, And I've read part of the book, but I haven't read it in years. So I don't remember what the, like, real names the people are. So I'm just going to go off the movie so you know who I'm talking about. He might be the only person who is a fiduciary in like that movie and i guess i should start with the premise of the movie but so the premise of the movie is basically three or four out of honestly there's more than this but people who you know saw what was going to happen how did they know that the housing market was going to collapse and it starts like a pretty iconic line where it's like how did they these like groups of weirdos know that the housing market was going to collapse simple they looked or something like that like it's really cheesy but it's actually true um Dr. Michael Burry, who is kind of, I think, the first one to really notice it, he notices that the tech bubble burst in, like, Silicon Valley in California, but housing prices continued to increase, which is counterintuitive. If, like, the people who are getting paid in that area to, like, buy those houses are losing jobs and money, then their housing prices, like, shouldn't continue to go up which is like his first red flag he kind of notices. And then 
there was a couple other statistics he mentions at the beginning of the movie. And so he actually starts looking into like what makes up these um, credit default swaps. And he is just like, like how many subprime mortgages are in these? And he kind of even says like, I don't even think the lawyers who put them together know what's in here. Um, but I guess I actually want to go back because it's how the movie starts. And I think it is kind of interesting. So essentially, and this is, I feel like more specific story to what you were talking about in the seventies. Um, you had like a typical mortgage and a typical mortgage was like a 30 year fixed rate. And the issue with that is there are only, there are only so many people who have, you know, a FICO, a credit score high enough to like qualify for those loans. And so essentially what happened was they've like run out of people to give mortgages to. So obviously now they're going to start going for like slightly riskier people. And that ends up with these less risky, but riskier mortgage groupings. Maybe you have, instead of like AAA rated, you have several lower rated mortgages bundled together. But because all of these like lower or higher risk mortgages are bundled now as a whole, it's less risky. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And so because of this, bankers are able to like make more money because now there's more people to get more loans. And so this just keeps deteriorating until you're what you're talking about, where there's like the ninja loan. So, and then they're being rated really high, AAA rated, but they're not filled with AAA rated loans. They're actually filled with like Bs and double Bs, which are like the lowest you can get. I think actually maybe triple Bs are down there too. But so essentially... The idea is that a few of these, Michael Burry is the first one to kind of make them in the movie. I'm not sure if that's true in real life, but he approaches these banks and basically says he wants to short the bonds. And what that means is like, he's going to bet against the bond. He's going to say that the bond is going to fail. So that's what like the big short, he's betting against the housing market. And this kind of gets out. And so the other characters and definitely obviously some other people, but not the same, they're not included in the story. They also start buying these credit default swaps where they are also betting against the housing market. The issue is the way the bank created them for them. They also have to pay a premium if the value of the bond rises. So if the bond continues to become more valuable, they have to pay the banks, which is how the bank is making money on this bet. That made sense. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Any questions? Any Anything? So I know that a, part, a big part of the movie is basically one attributing kind of like this in some way was able to be seen, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That these problems like weren't 100% hidden. Yeah. And how does the movie kind of deal with like the aftermath of like, okay, clearly there's people who knew this was going to happen. They tried to warn certain people like who, how do they, how does the movie talk about accountability afterwards? So I think something really interesting the movie does is like this is a really depressing topic the first part of the movie is kind of oh yay like these underdogs like the banks messed up and they're catching on and they're gonna profit off the banks and i think in in kind of something that's really interesting is also because the value of the bond keep increasing and they keep having to pay the premium you're watching the characters and they're like this doesn't make any sense like mm -hmm. where's the corruption because we can see that people are failing to 
I guess the, I can't remember the actual term, but it's like when they fail at 8%, like everything basically fails. And it's like, when I think when the movie starts, it's already at 4% and now it's at like 5%. And they're like, okay, well, you know, the bonds are becoming more worthless. So we should be getting paid and the bank is continuing to value them higher, but selling them as if they are worthless. Like they're raising the price of the short while continuing to raise the price of the bond as well. So kind of what you were saying about like profiting at all aspects of it. Um, and so you see them and they go and they talk to mortgage lenders and they talk to people in Florida. They talk to like a stripper. That's because they're trying to figure out if there's actually a bubble at first. They're like, no, who doesn't pay their mortgage? That's dumb. And in the movie, they go and they talk to a stripper and she says that like she has another loan and she's ex- describing the refinancing thing we were talking about before. And Mark Baum, the guy's like, no, he lied to you. Like if the increase of, if your home doesn't increase in value, you're not going to be able to refinance and your premiums could go up like 200, 300%. And she was like on all my loans. And he was like, what do you mean all your loans? I thought we're talking about two loans on one house. And she said, I have five houses and a condo. And the next scene, it like hard cuts. And he's like, there's a bubble on the phone. Like it's very comedic. But Mm -hmm. then they go to like a securities convention and they're talking to a lot of people trying to figure out like, are, are the bankers stupid? Like, do they not know what they've done? Or like, do they know something that we don't know? Like, that's a big part of the movie trying to figure out like, clearly something's going on here. Like none of this is making sense. And I think one thing I really appreciate about the movie is there's a scene where the guys are celebrating because they finally made this big deal in Vegas And while they're kind of like dancing about how they're going to be rich, the third guy who is with them, who is helping them with this deal is it's Brad Pitt's character is like, stop it. Like you don't realize that you just bet against our American housing market. And for every 1% that employment goes up, like 40,000 people are going to die. And like, that's what you just bet on. That's going to happen. And the guys are like, we were just excited. Like we didn't realize. And he's like, yeah, I know that's what I hate about banking. It reduces people to numbers and statistics. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, I mean, we all do to some extent, right? Like we forget when we're looking at a statistic that like, yeah, that is a group of people. But I think it's really the case in banking that people forget when they're making these bets that they are literally betting on like the livelihood of people and their jobs and their pensions and retirement. Yeah. And I also think it goes one step further right like it it not only does that but there's it's it's incentivized right like they Mm -hmm. were also extremely predatory like when they were looking for more people to buy these subprime loans they like went to black churches and things to like market these loans oh yeah and so there is some form of predation happening the scene where they're in florida and they're talking to the mortgage guys they're like who's signing up for this home And the one guy goes like, oh, you know, I target the immigrants. You tell them they're getting a home and they'll sign anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then um, he's like, oh, do you target immigrants too? And they're like, oh, no, their credit, their credit isn't even bad enough for him. Like, and the guy's like, I wouldn't be driving a seven series if it wasn't for strippers. Like they're and what's really interesting is Mark Baum like pulls him away and he's like, I don't understand. Like, why are they confessing? And his coworkers like, no, they're not confessing. They're bragging. Yeah. So I think that's part of the reason why I, I do like the movie. And okay, I think one of the quotes that I really like about the movie is um, 
Adam McKay said the studio was really worried that like the heroes of the films were like too flawed and the studio was like oh shouldn't they be more likable and he was like no the heroes are dirty like Martin Luther King had affairs Gandhi was a bit of a horn dog we're all dicks let them be dicks that was the quote that like he said <laughs> but he was just like no these like characters aren't good like there's even a line I, I don't know why I'm remembering all of Mark Baum's line I think it's because he's really funny but his wife is talking to him his brother committed suicide and so he's kind of like against the system Mm-hmm. And she was like, you're not a hero. Like, heroes don't live in Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue. I don't remember. What, but she's like, yeah, you're in the system and, like, you're fighting against it. But you're also complicit. Like, you're also a part of it. And that is a big thing that he has where, like, he's one of the last people to sell his swaps. Because he's like, when I sell these, like, I'm as bad as everyone else. Yeah. But also he was a fiduciary. So he had, like, the legal responsibility to sell them to benefit, like, the people who invested in his firm. This is not by any means like a good thing that they said, but I like the way that they said it. They do have um, two lines. Again, Mark Baum says them. And one of them is actually a real thing that like a speech he gave. um, And he was debating like a bull while um, who's the not Bear Stearns. Who's the first person that went Lehman while Lehman's stock is plummeting. And the guy says he's like, if this seems too good to be true, like this actually happened. So while he's doing this debate, he finishes by saying like, at the end of the day, average people are going to be the ones to have to pay for this because they always do. And when he's on the phone before he sells the swaps, he says, people are going to be doing what they always do when the economy is down, blaming immigrants and poor people. And, you know, the movie I've noticed whenever you start to feel a little too sad about what's going on, like it lets you feel that for a bit. And then it gets to something kind of comedic. Um, and so there's a part like a voiceover, but Mark Baum was wrong. Like all the banks were broken up and everyone went to jail and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, just kidding. That's not what happened. Like, this is the only guy who went to jail. The banks took the money that the government used to bail him out and gave them all big bonuses and lobbied against Congress to prevent like bank reform. And then they blamed immigrants and poor people and teachers. I like that kind of honesty from the movie where it's like, yeah, this is a really effed up situation. And like, it is, it does leave you like really helpless feeling. Mm -hmm. So maybe since we're at an hour, we should kind of end with like, okay, well, like, how did this all end? Is it ended now? And I think a good part to go back to that you had mentioned was despite all this reform, which you can talk about more if you want to, there's a new form of, this type of loan right like yeah obviously subprime loans are not a thing after 2008 i said 3008 wow okay jonas brothers or what's that song it's like i'm um the black eyed peas that was like i'm so 2008 you're so 3000 and late yeah love that i I knew what you were referencing the black eyed peas i knew that was intentional (laughs) so basically there's this new risky loan the clo or collateralized loan obligation it works the exact same way as the CDO. Um, yeah, literally just renamed <laughs> and repackaged. Yeah. And so instead of like to risky home buyers, these are just going to risky business owners. Um, mm. And so they're creating these bundles again. Um, and I think like that just goes to show that, sure, like there was some reform that happened. Like Dodd-Frank is, was an act, like it's supposed to limit the amount that people are able to make risky deals um, and like uh, checks these credit ratings that were clearly wrong in 2008. Mm -hmm. 
but it still gives it, these financial institutions so much power. And again, keep u- using this jargon that no one investigates until like something huge happens and then they're just incentivized they're not they're actually disincentivized to think ahead of time or be proactive because there's always this response to just bail them out because they're too big we there's this narrative that we need them to somehow regulate the economy Mm -hmm. and to keep it going and that's one of the final lines from um in that speech I was reading about from Mark Baum, where he's like, remember I told you the whole time in the movie, they're trying to figure out, like, is there something that we don't know? Or is, like, everyone stupid and greedy and just, like, didn't look into anything further? And he finally kind of says, like, they knew, they just didn't care. Like, they knew the American people would bail them out. And so they just did what they wanted. And I think what you're saying is right. One thing I just kind of wanted to end with, we were kind of comparing Iceland and there's a line, one of the things when I was saying that, you know, I go back and I watch the movie and I'm like, oh, and there's a line when he's like, Iceland's done. Like, Iceland and Spain are finished. Um, and I didn't really realize this, but, I mean, if we thought America's banks were corrupt, you'd actually be surprised how crazy Iceland's were. And so Iceland was hit super, super hard by what's happening in the U.S. And I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about something I found really interesting. The way Iceland handled the crash was basically they restructured household and firm debts. And so they wanted to avoid what's called zombie firms. And so instead what they did is they separated each of the, the government required the privatized banks and then they split the banks into old banks and new banks. And so they bailed out only the domestic portion of those banks And then they took them over with deposits and, like, new capital. So then they did a bunch of things to, like, essentially disincentivize keeping those, like, zombie firms afloat, which are, like, the old banks. Um, And then they forced the old banks to retain their, like, assets and foreign debts. And so um, essentially, like, the IMF comes in and... What's the IMF? They, you should define all this stuff. Uh, International Monetary Fund. Sorry. <laughs> but they come in, they put on, like, strict strict capital controls on the krona, which is, like, their form of currency. And these are temporary, and they're released um, and ended in 2015. But essentially, like, their exchange rate stabilized in 2009. And Iceland ended up doing, like, incredibly well. Like, if you, obviously, they it was harder at first. But I think it's really interesting how Iceland actually separated the banks and we're like no we're actually only going to bail out that part that you were talking about before which is that part that is actually directly correlated to um Mm -hmm. like individual homeowners and like their loans with people and it's like no the other half messed up and we're not going to bail them out that's super interesting i also wonder like like i think like the comparison to nordic countries or like generally countries with extremely strong social safety nets it's always it's always hard to make the comparison because generally the people are already better off because of the safety net that's created and they're all pretty homogenous so i wonder Mm -hmm. kind of the transferability of that kind of response to well it was actually really interesting because the systems there weren't as many banks which i think is interesting because so there was even more collusion kind of going on between like the banks and the raging agencies there's like so much and honestly i wrote the paper over a year and a half ago so i don't remember it in as good of detail as i do 
What if I attach that as my resource this week? I'm like, here's my paper on Iceland. <laughs> my professor said it was really well done. So <laughs> he was like, this was a joy to read at the end of the semester. And I was like, wow, thanks. But it actually was surprising. I almost feel like the Icelandic banks were kind of worse off, but obviously the country as a whole is like much smaller in population. But it was like crazy. The international loans they were doing and like they had no money. It was just wild. So if actually if anyone has like an interest in this, researching Iceland is in their um, financial crash is crazy. Really interesting though. Okay. Also, I think, fun fact, because I had a friend who's Icelandic, the only banks that didn't go under in Iceland were all run by women. How many banks would that be? I think it was like three of them. Mm. But they were the only banks run by women. (laughs) It was like the three (laughs) women-run banks continued. They were the only ones not in debt. I was like, hmm. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, you guys. Of course, let us know any feedback on Instagram or in our email. And if you can, please rate and like, subscribe to our podcast. It really helps us out. Tune in next week for our episode, Twilight and Taxes, where I force Essence to watch movies about vampires. (laughs) (laughs) You can't see me covering my face. (laughs) You're like, no. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Goodbye.